You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. I recently sat down with Dr. David K. Butler, Chief Medical Information Officer at KeyCare and the founder of Calix Partners Consulting. We talk about Dr. Butler's background and his experiences undergoing digital health record transformations. We also discuss the gamification of the EHR user experience, the keys to designing software specifically for remote caregiving, and what it means to be a virtualist. Let's plug in. Welcome, David Butler, to the show. How are you today, sir? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me, Craig. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a pleasure to have you. We have known each other for how long? Oh, man. Oof. At least, what, 15 to 20 years? It's rough. been almost 20 years. I just did the calculation hey. in my head. It's been it's been almost 20 years. I think it was uh, 2005, so maybe 19 years. Um, and in that time, uh, you have been involved uh, very significantly in, in the healthcare uh, IT world. Um, from all different sides, what, where do we find you today? Who are you? What are you working on today? Oh, today, yeah. So I'm uh, got a couple of things going on with me. I'm an interim CMIO at a, uh, a virtual company called KeyCare. I mean, I heard of them. Lyle Berkowitz, CEO there, also the first Epic um, virtual platform ever in the U.S. So that has a lot of implications for connectivity. I think we can talk about that. So it's pretty cool. Um, doing some also CMIO type coaching, mentoring. Um, advising some startups, third parties, things like that. Really cool stuff. Just a diverse cadre of things right now. So it's kind of cool learning new stuff, especially in the VC space. I just don't know that world at all. So a lot of cool stuff there. Awesome. Well, why don't you give us a little background about how you got to, to where you are? Uh, you are a physician. I know that. Talk to me about uh, uh, what your specialty is and uh, you know how, how you got into this, uh, how you got into this field. How'd you get to the, the current Dr. Butler we all know and love. Well, first of all, I'm a Texan by a voice, probably. You'll pick that up sooner or later. Uh, <laughs> the y'all will start coming out. Uh, born and raised Texas, small town. When you think of Friday Night Lights, whatever you think of, that was my life. Went to Texas A&M undergrad. Um, then from there, med school in Houston, UT Med School. Now it's called McGovern. From there, across the street to Baylor College of Medicine. Trained in internal medicine and pediatrics. Yeah, did both of those. So they took six years and crunched it down to four and made me take both board exams, the peds and the internal medicine exams. So had I known that, that last statement probably would have changed a little bit. <laughs> but I uh, did that, so it was really exciting. I learned everything zero to 99, which is really cool. I love learning, right? And Baylor was just awesome just to learn in the uh, medical center in Houston, right? Uh, during that time also, um, I had a daughter, and, well, this was like, well, I had my kid one month before med school and got married the weekend before med school. You do the math on that. So it was a little bit trickier. Uh, but through all that, in 03, finished up residency, moved to Pencil, middle of Pennsylvania with the kids and wife to a company called Geisinger Health Systems. And that's where I ran to a little clunky piece of software that was really slowing me down called Epic. That that Epic, uh, first of all, uh, I think the question that a lot of our audience wants to know is, uh, which is better, uh, internal medicine or pediatrics? And why is it pediatrics? Oh, pediatrics. <laughs> You know what? That, that's a good question because I say, why'd you go into Met Peds? Why didn't you just do family practice or why didn't you just do internal med- one or the other, right? And I, I have to think back. I was just talking to someone on the plane about it. I think it was a resident. She's a resident now, family practice last night. Crazy. Um, and we were talking and I 
I think what it was was that it was the residents that you work with as a third and fourth year that after a while you're like, man, they're really cool. They're kind of, they're like a vibe, you know, and certain things like, what do you do? So I'm med Pete's like, what is this med Pete stuff? Right. So it was more of that. And I think it was, uh, I guess this ability to code switch, medical code switch, like from pediatrics to adults, like every three months you go hard internal medicine, especially at Baylor. It was very like, no, no jokes, button up your white coat, you know, one of those. Right. And then the pediatric side where you had to lose all that seriousness because you're dealing with parents, the kids and all that, you had to flip. So I think maybe that was sort of was it attracted me to in personality or something. But yeah, good feel. And I loved it. And that's a, a guy who was when I first started uh, practicing and, and get my chops because I was basically hospital based. So when I got the Geisinger, they were looking for somebody that could go between hospital and clinic. And this is 03. I'm like, oh, I'd like to do that because I don't really care about outpatient as much as I care about inpatient because I know inpatient very well. And so joined Geisinger. And did a combo role where I was hospitalist in the morning, working at Mountain Indian Medical Center, a little local hospital there. Okay, should pay. They use Meditech, by the way. And I think that's part of my origin story we'll get to. <laughs> and then you go back in clinic in the afternoon. You see in patients that were discharged a week ago from Miss Meditech, but they're in our Epic system. And no information. So, And that was around 03 to 07. So that was around, that'll give you a little bit of insight in where we were in the world for the paper, uh, EHRs and all that. So, but when you, you were a resident, you were using, you were at the VA, right? Where they went from paper to EHR in front of you. Did that, was that, did that happen? Yes. Yeah. No. And that was probably some of the more traumatic events of my uh, digital technology life uh, as a resident in the Houston VA, which is the largest federal building outside of the World Trade Center, right? <laughs> in the U.S. The v, Houston VA is huge, right? We could literally run down a hall for like, it's got to be a quarter mile a hallway. It's crazy. And so long story short, they flipped the VA from, uh, we used to do these VT100 terminals where you write your note at the end of the day, you write your note and type it in the computer, but then you do all orders on paper, you give it to the clerk, they fold it up, you know, send it to the pharmacist, the nurse, whatever, the clerk was like the quarterback, right? And overnight, overnight, Craig, I, I, I joke with you not, you know the word, beep that. Can you beep that? Sound like I cursed, but I didn't. Okay, anyway, uh, <laughs> I... Uh, so yeah, they overnight, I felt like the electronic record came in and what used to take like literally five seconds to start a drip, an IV dripper, whether it's nitroglyph, nitroprusside, or whatever those crazy stuff we used to do, that would take literally five seconds and the patient would have it in their veins in a matter of like probably a minute. And all of a sudden that process took 20 clicks and I still wasn't sure if it went anywhere. And that was my first aha moment, like, okay, this thing can go off the rails, if not done the right way. And uh, so the VA was my uh, starting where I first, as a resident, you had to use it if you're trying to get home, right? And so all these attendings, all the older docs were like just circling, waiting on us to finish our notes so they could then copy and paste it and get out of there. And that was the world, that's, that was the world I got introduced to when it came to converting electronic health records to going from pixels to paper, as I call it. Crazy. Well, it's funny. One of the, one of the things we talk about in, in human centered design is, is transparency and, and visibility. And, and what you're describing is, is classic of, um, going from a transparent system to one that was more opaque, uh, with the electronic health record. Because as you said, when I wrote, when you wrote an order, you took the order and you gave it to, you put it in an area where, you know, a clerk or a nurse or someone was going to see it, or you, you gave it to them directly. Absolutely. And, and then the, you lost that ability because you yeah. pressed a button and did it go anywhere? I, I'm not sure. Is someone going to see it? Did I do it right? There's there's no there's no transparency there. And so you're you're kind of going against the laws of, of design at that point. Yeah, laws of design and more importantly, laws of human patient care was what was freaking me out, right? 
It's like, wait, where did that go? Where is it? I think I ordered it. And that was when I realized, like, we really got to get good real quick, real fast in healthcare as getting into this digital space, especially if patient safety was a driver of the EHR. And, and this is where I feel like, as I reflect back, I wish, this is my wish, I wish we would have separated things out. I wish we would have done documentation first, let that go first, everyone across the world, right? And then we bring in ordering, right, inpatient or outpatient, but not only medications, right? So medications are the things that hurt, kill people, right? And so why do they make us order x-rays, diets? Oh, my God, we were having to order every goddamn thing. I'm like, wait, something just jumped the shark here. And I think that's when I realized it in residency. And I was committed to say, hey, what I'm not going to do is give my career over to the technologist, okay? Because this wasn't a good vibe in the early 2000s with anybody in IT, okay? And I think any doc on the call will probably vouch for that, that statement because we were in a new world and we felt like the hospital's IT could not meet us where we were as far as getting patients taken care of safely, effectively, efficiently, and all the quadruple aim stuff today. And so, yeah, I think our generation, I'll say our generation, you know, 50, 52, you're probably 90. I don't know, Craig. But our generation, <laughs> our generation went from the, I think we were the paper to pixels generation. We saw that transition, right? And now we're in this. And so those folks coming behind us have been benefited from some of the, you know, they just, they started their career CPOE. They have no paper concept, you know? So I think that's a easier uh, mentally, but it's still kludgy. The workflows are kludgy still, and we've got to keep working through those. And that's kind of what led me to what I do today is just kludgy workflows. I had to ask myself, who created this button? Find the person who made this button because this thing is not working, right? And they always say, oh, it's working as it's working as designed, working as designed. And, and uh, I was like, but is it working as I would expect it? So how about that? Can we ask that question? Is it working as expected? Because I don't care how it's designed. Right. I do care how it's designed, but it has to be designed and working as expected. Is that a safe statement? I think it's safe. So how did you go from just someone, a, a physician using this technology to someone trying to uh, to change it or at least understand it better? I, I think, you know what? I think my aha moment came also the second uh, revelation, from one pain in residency to when I got to finally a guy who working and using Epic, the software at the time. And, and then Mount Nittany's Medical Center, they had Meditech, and both systems were very difficult to navigate effectively. And it wasn't until my in-laws bought my son an Xbox, and he was too young for Xbox, so I took the Xbox and replaced with a Wii, right? Or whatever that was he needed back then, right? Or they wanted, not needed, didn't need any of it. But, and it was when I opened up Xbox, I put in the this is DVD called Halo, came with it. I never heard of Halo, never really heard of Xbox at the time because I hadn't gamed since college. Man, I put this in, man. I remember the night I was in the basement. I put it in. I had a big screen TV because that was my, I treated myself from, you know, going to get out of residence. I said, oh, big screen TV. I'll do that. And then when I put it on this big screen TV in the basement, dude, that was a visual experience, man, I, had, I hadn't seen before in a video game. It was first person shooter. So it means that you're seeing the world from your view, right? And you land on a planet and you're this guy named Master Chief and you're, in, you're, you're the persona. And as you're walking through this world, the non-player, whatever they call those characters, what they call those characters that you know that interact with you but not part of the game, non-player NPCs, maybe non-player characters, non-player character. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, right. Something I, the gamers know this cult, right? Anyway, <laughs> so these these non-player characters were interacting with me, but to help me now figure out how to use the joystick. They're like, hello, Master Chief. I'm like, hey, is it? Try try squatting down. Okay, how do you squat down? Then the next thing on the, on screen, it'll give you how to do it. And that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, 
we're outgunned. If this video game in my basement by myself is teaching me how to use this complex 32 different control uh, controller while navigating a three-dimensional world that has these beautiful suns, mountains, landscape, water, you're walking through water, you can hear it, right? Your, your, the, the, the plasma rifle you're carrying has a shadow on the ground and there's no sun in this world, right? It's like, wait, what is this? And then I realized that game is made up of all ones and zeros. A human did that. And that EHR is made of ones and zeros. A human did that. Well, what's the next logical thought on that one, Craig? It's like, somebody's not talking, <laughs> right? I mean, I could literally take lives, virtual lives of people all night in this video game or, or aliens easily. And it takes me 40 clicks plus 15 miles, miles, I don't know, to order an IV drip the next day in the hospital. That's crazy talk. So why do you think there was, uh, um, and probably still is, uh, a big disconnect between what you had at home in your basement and the technology that you were using in the, in the hospital? And you probably could help me out with this one as well. But my thoughts are that, um, and I looked at it a little bit, I think, I think just the financial models right now, the gaming industry almost fits in entertainment, right? And I think we've, we've misaligned and misprioritized things a bit. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, when you're designing for a single person or persona, you can be very niche and focused, uh, unlike the electronic health records, which it's like a big uh, Swiss knife, army knife, that everyone uses a little bit differently. And so I think from a company vendor shipping out a product and not allowing, if a user adjusted it, personal settings on those video games, it's just for me. But when you start touching a setting like Epic, well, you're not only affecting you, you may affect a group of you. And so those are decisions that need to be made now, right? So now you're getting into governance. Like what changes do we move this? In Halo, I mean, when they were testing Halo before they shipped that, they, <laughs> it's like, oh, they did like, yeah, like 20 all age uh, uh, people lined up and they had girls, boys, uh, they had grown men, women, they had all sorts of folks lined up and they put these phobia cameras on all their eyes and they tracked everywhere they're going around these fantastical worlds, right? And at the end of it all, what they knew was like they were gaming, they were going for about 13 to 16 hours of gameplay, I think. Because at that time they knew if you get 13 to 16 hours of gameplay, that's your sweet spot, the game works, right? And so if you go below that, it's easy, too easy, they get bored of it. Above that's too hard, they'll abandon it, right? And so they continue these tweaks where they would look for see where the hot spots on valleys and, and uh, 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 riverbeds, wherever the the aliens were pretty aggressive, they saw all these hot spots where the, the the players weren't succeeding, right? And they they looked at it and they analyzed, ah, we didn't make the weapons or all the things that we planted in the bushes. We didn't make them big enough so the players could see it. So when they increased the size of it, or they gave them extra weapons in that area. Now they saw that they got out of that area, right? It was just the the study of, of just a video game, Craig. I mean, this not saving lives. This is a video game. All this work went into a video game. And we and at the time, I couldn't get my company um, to even pay for a couple of, a piece of software called Camtasia that I could use to make a training video for docs. <laughs> it's like, and so I, I think that was a disconnect, you know? Well, let's, let's talk about the video game for just a, another second. So gamification, you know, the idea of taking something that's work or, you know, not that much fun that you don't do uh, on your spare time and, and turn it into um, uh, a game. Uh, can we gamify the EHR a little bit more or is that, are we doing that at our own risk? I, I like that concept. I think that there are some things that we can continue to steal 
from every vertical, not just the gaming industry. Definitely gamify, gamification works. We know psychologically, you got to figure out what is a what is a dopamine hit? Where can we find some dopamine hits, right, in this EHR? But in order to know that, we have to interview. We have to understand the users, right? What do they care about, you know? And also, sometimes you can't even ask, you know, you can't ask them questions sometimes because they just don't know. And also, muscle memory is so strong in there where you say, so how do you order... So how do you order, uh, say, Augmenting today? How many clicks does it take to order Augmenting today? Or, or Doc's complaining about, well, I can't find the echo anytime I order it, so I just have my nurse do it, you know, whatever. Whenever you do that, what, what we find is that physicians as a whole, typically, when we get frustrated, we get quiet. And fr- we get quiet. We don't, I mean, we may complain once or twice, but we'll, if we get no response once or twice, that's done, you know? And so the silence has been mistaken for a good thing because when, you know, you and me, we go into companies, we evaluate them as a consultant, as a strategist. When you're talking to folks, uh, sometimes, well, the doc's not really complaining about that. Okay. I don't complain about Outlook. Or, <laughs> but I do. I do. For the record, I do complain about Outlook. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think those are not, like, silence is not golden, unlike in the movies, right? Sorry. Uh, silence, I mean, you better take a peek other there. And so what we've been doing lately, though, we're leveraging data to help get the volume of the docs, right? I mean, you can ask folks things, just like medicine, right? Um, and I approach uh, consulting with companies like like the, uh, the soap note, subjective, get the voice of the customer. What are the docs saying? What are the co- what are the what are the, the complaints, right? Get that subjective, right? And then you say, okay, objective. Well, what's the data? Like, do you have any data? Or they do you have any objective data from Epic, the software, or they using it? Things like that. Look at the data, right? And you can even augment that with a nice survey to fill in those gaps between what the docs say in the survey, right? Uh, I mean, what the, um, the 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 data says. And then after that, you come up with you know almost like an exam. What's the exam? Well, you go around, look at the place, you know, people processing tech, and then uh, after that, you come up with a nice assessment. And here's a plan. So that's kind of the way I approach these type of things. And what I focus on most, what we should focus on most now, I feel. Is UX and UI, that's just a big word for user experience and user interface. A lot of docs and people that use these tools don't realize you can easily move that button here or move this here or remove the clutter. You know, I call it Marie Kondo. You can Marie Kondo the hell out of this thing if you want to take a minute to do it. You know, it can really make your workspace minimalist. And so your attention goes where it needs to go at any moment of the day. And that your most common task or the things that you do daily the most is streamlined, automated, or whatever. So... I don't know, that was a long-winded question for your long-winded answer to your question. So that brings up a, an interesting point. Um, how much control do we give to the user, and how much control do we keep on the on the administrative side? If I let you change all kinds of things, then it's going to be very difficult to support, right? When you call the help desk, I don't know what where that button is because you changed it, um, and the person next to you can't necessarily help you anymore. If you're like, oh wait, where's that thing? Oh, it's the button on the left. Wait, I don't have a button on the left because I changed it two years ago and I never got, I don't even remember how to do that. So, so where do you actually, where is that sweet spot of kind of standardizing on one hand, but also allowing the individual user to, to change the things to make it work specifically for them? Yeah. Well, that's a solid, that's a solid. I don't think I'm going to give you a good answer for it, but there's a couple of, um, Examples, I think, that folks will resonate with, like we need to think through. And and just sometimes when I had a hiccup or when I really just uh, just jacked it up back in the day, giving the docs way too much control and causing confusion and everything you just said versus being more paternalistic and taking everything away. Right. It's like there's somewhere in the middle. And I find that 
It's usually organization type specific. For example, Fonsa Corps, multi, that was, uh, we were 15 hospitals, five states, right? Okay. And within a hospital, there is a lot of variation. Okay. Now, within the next hospital, two miles away, there's a lot of variation. Okay. Now, the next state in this hospital, there's a lot of variation. So the question is, does the, the tools that we provide for the nurses at hospital A work for B, right? In the same region. And then let's extrapolate out to a new state like New York, right? Where the nurses have very limited scope of work because they can only do like two orders. I don't know if this is true, but it still felt that way when I was there. Okay. So please check the regs in New York, check yourself. And California, you too. Anyway, it's very limited. Okay. And I'm like, what is going on? But we had to understand that so we can now create the software effectively so that the nurse work within the scope of practice. Whereas in Texas or some, you know, some of the other places I've consulted, Guthrie, the nurses have a little bit more uh, range. They can do more. So you give, quote, give them more permissions in the HR. These are some really interesting topics. These are niche areas that your viewers may or may not know about, but everything we do in that EHR has like a switch that should they be able to do this or that? or Yes or no? Yes or no? Almost as an outlook. Like, should we allow every user to reply all or not? That's a really big decision, right? And how would we know that? <laughs> and so yeah. that's the things that we've been dealing with for over 20 years of this EHR. Who should be able to do what, when? And so managing all the complexities of that, with uh, of the technical complexities with real life, where we all know this, the EHR is made up of ones and zeros. The human body is, woof. I mean, that's like at least 150, 256 shades of gray, right? I mean, there's no, it's not black and white at all. And so what we've done is try to get these very rigid uh, IT systems, ones and zeros, to accommodate a very complicated model of, of human care, caring for humans that we didn't, and we still are practicing that. We're the practice of medicine, kind of what they call it. And uh, and so I think that's really what we're running into. And now you got to mix the complexities of healthcare in the U.S. And I'm going to say that again, healthcare in the U.S. is very complicated because of the third uh, payers. Insurance wants certain things from the EHR, the doctor's workflows, that now we have to think about that when designing, or we never had to think about that with paper and a pen, right? Paper and a pen, you walk in the room, you give them what you give them, there you go, and all the magic happened in the background. And all that background now has been pushed to the front, and that's what we're seeing across U.S. physician burnout, you know, due to administrative tasks being pushed to them, that, and also folks not working to the highest of the licensure. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in an organization where they have an RN. We did we did some data reports. We had an RN that was consistently taking vitals in the clinic, and they had like at least two MAs in that clinic. Okay, that's all I'll say about that statement. Okay, an RN that is taking vital signs, but you have MAs there that could do that. And so the question is: Is there higher levels of work that the RN could do based on the licensure, right? And maybe is that a technical problem? No, it's not a technical problem. That's an operational problem, right? And so I think what Epic and these softwares have done, it has forced hospitals to grow up, mature, standardize things really fast and and to sustain it. And I think hospital systems are now realized like, whoa, this software is kind of cool, but at the same time, it takes a lot of work. How do you find that sweet spot between, um, I'll give you the stereotypical uh, IT answer of no, everyone gets the, every nurse has the exact same screen because nurses do the same things. And every doctor is the exact same screen. Uh, because they do the same things. That maybe is the is the as far uh, 
shifted to the IT version as possible. Now to the doctor and clinician and, and nurse version is, hey, uh, I'm a cardiologist, but I practice differently than the cardiologist next to me. And so don't even tell me. I don't even know what a gastroenterologist does. That, that's a different that's a different planet. They're aliens to me. And so I need to have exactly what I want, the way I want to see it uh, for every screen. And clearly both parties can't get what they want. So there's going to be somewhere in between. I think it started off um, 20 years ago is much more on the IT side, right? Like, hey, uh, either A, our software doesn't have the opportunity for you to personalize or B, if it does, we're not going to give it to you because we think you're going to mess things up. And when you call us and ask us questions, we're not really going to know how to answer them because we can't see exactly all the you know, changes that you've made. Right. And I think we've moved further to the right um, what, and, and with giving users more opportunities to kind of standardize. And and um, yet I'm still frustrated as I'm, and maybe you are as well. Still seeing physicians, mostly I'm going to pick on this physicians, not not other clinical folks who complain for valid reason that there's too many clicks or this is really not intuitive. And then when um, we offer to kind of help them or, or you know, hey, there's ways you can personalize these screens to make them look better. They don't, they say they don't have time. Yeah. So I call that, I call that, uh, there's, there's a phenomenon I think I'm going to label called the rental car phenomenon, right? You ever go on vacation, you get a nice rental, right? You're like, you're like doing it. You got the Sirius XM radio. You got the CarPlay built in where your old 2016 Ford, mine doesn't quite have that. And so you get used to a different level of tech and experience, right? And then when you come back, you're like, oh, you're not, you're kind of like, blah, your car is not like it used to be, or your TV is not as better than hotel TV, whatever, right? Well, the same thing happens with docs, but it happens every day with their iPhone, with Amazon, with things that they use that are intuitive, and then they come back to the HR like, ah, right? They don't know they're feeling that, but that dopamine hit happens, okay? Because that's what we do. Like, they're experiencing really good tech outside of healthcare daily, outside of their job, whether it's the iPhones, the cool apps, the, the Chrome extensions, and all the cool things we do, right? to be efficient. But then within our practice, within healthcare, it's like, nope, we can't do that. Nope, we can't do that. So right now, I feel like the patients have so much tech and they're, the docs are kind of, we're, we're still playing defensive, man. We're playing defense as best we can because our health systems are slow as heck to get us the right tech. Even with the AI, great example is AI stuff, right? This AI should be all over healthcare system right now. And it's happening faster than we think. When I say AI, narrow, narrow AI, for example, the Note, DAX, those things like that. Boy, that got mature really fast, and that is probably going to be the number one savior, I'll say, of physicians' time and brains in the next year. That's my prediction on that one. But because of if we can get it rolled out to those guys fast enough, uh, to the to the folks on the front lines fast enough, right? And that means going through legal risk compliance. I know all of them in these health systems. I work with four large health systems, and I tell you, getting through those for legal risk compliance uh, and quality, you know. Those are some really hard barriers of getting things to the front line of the docs because everyone almost has to sign off on it somehow, you know? And so I think once we get better at streamlining those processes, say, okay, this does this, this, and here's the negative effects of it. And if they're negative, then how do we mitigate that as a system? Focus on that, and then let's get it in. Amazon created one click God knows how long ago, right? And I'm sure there were folks like, well, you can't do that, Amazon. One click? I mean, come on. I mean, what if all the what ifs, what abouts, right? It happens in the room. Well, sometimes you better make a decision, right? And then be ready to uh, mitigate, okay? And I think those are some things. When you make a decision with incomplete information, that means you better have a uh, a game plan, right? To say, if this happens, we're going to do this. If this happens, we'll do this. And I find that healthcare, sometimes we don't make a decision until we have all the data 
and 100% accuracy shot, you know, and that's just unrealistic in 2023. That's an excellent point. So from a healthcare system or from a hospital administrative uh, or, or from an IT leader standpoint, you're absolutely right. We, we can't, we, uh, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis is the term, right? That we just can't make a decision until we have all the information. However, every single day, doctors and nurses and therapists are doing exactly that, right? In the emergency room, they never have all the information that they need. And in any, it, in the middle of a surgery, you don't have all the information that you'd like to have and you have to make a decision. And, you, and sometimes you go with your gut and oftentimes it's the experience, but um, uh, we're, we're not able to kind of uh, um, leverage that on a, on a system-wide standpoint. And I get it, uh, but it's still, you know, it still stands that you're at some point going to need to make a decision and, and move forward. And, and no one knows exactly where that point is. Where, when do I have enough information and experience to, to make a decision that when I'm representing the entire system? Solid, solid. And you know, I've been in those positions. You've been a CMIO where, you know, like, well, if I approve this, this is going to be turned on. It's going to affect 800 docs, right? Now that was a gift and a curse that we've been given as CMIOs, Right. Now, I take that. I remember when the times came, I think it was actually when I was, we had 36,000 diabetic patients, created like seven tools that we we're going to push into Epic and they were going to help all docs manage diabetes, diabetes better, right? And I just remember like when it happened, it was like the next week, it was almost like, I was like, wow, you could see like folks are using the tools that I came up with and you can almost see like, okay, hemoglobin A1 disease are going down over the next year and they were directly linked to those tools. So what that told me was, wow, just like you can make things, bad things go viral, maybe you can make good things go viral. So that's was my hook into this whole EHR game to say, how can I do, how can we do this for good? How can we make clickbait that's cool clickbait? That, you know what I'm saying? How do we do this for good? So that's kind of the way I'm, I like to approach things now. I steal from other industries, whether it's banking, restaurant, whatever ideas I see, I say, how can we put it here and make it cool? You know, so I think you're, that segues, I think I read in your book, you said the world, in your book, Greg, you said this, and I forget the page, you said, we need more CIOs, we need more chief imitation officers. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I love that. Let me be clear. I don't think that, that's certainly not my line, uh, but the idea is that there's so much good out there, and why are, why does everyone think that they need to figure this stuff out on their own? Just find what others have done, and if it if that works for you without modification, then just, you know, use it. That's, I mean, that's what, that's, that's what we do in healthcare, right? That's why we publish a study to say, Hey, I found this thing and, and uh, hopefully it works the same way for you and your patients as it did for, or for me and, and for mine. Dr. Butler, you uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast that you work for a company called KeyCare. You mentioned that the CEO and founder is Lyle Berkowitz. Uh, longtime listeners of the pod will uh, perhaps remember Dr. Berkowitz was actually the first person we interviewed. Uh, for the podcast. So uh, uh, it's all going in, in, in a circle now. Tell us a little bit about KeyCare and um, can we, I'd love to focus a little bit on, on what you do with, uh, with virtualists. First of all, what is a virtualist? And secondly, how do we help these people? Yeah. So virtualist or it's a term, relatively new term to me, kind of like back when the word term hospitalist came out. And I think maybe when the word sniffist, remember sniffist, S capital S N F dash ist is a person that <laughs> handles. I the think sniff. you're making up stuff now. Now you're just making up stuff. 
I may have made that one up, but you get it. Virtualists are providers that typically spend like over 80, 90% of the time in a virtual setting as far as care for patients, not necessarily in real life, brick and mortar type. Okay. So this key, key care platform is a, is one, is not, is a startup or uh, maybe a year ago, been live a year ago on Epic. I get, I get a call um, from Lyle maybe in, and then summertime. Say, hey, Dave, you know, you got a minute. I say, yeah, what's going on? I say, yeah, there's just some, you know, some white noise we're hearing from some of the, the users of the software, and they just want you know want you to take a peek at it, and maybe also serve as interim CMO for a while. I'm like, great, let's do it. And so while in there, just like I said before, how we, how you go into a system, you look at things, you say who's talking, you know, can we get, can I interview docs and things like this? Well, virtuals are so busy, right? And they're also episodic, and they have multiple other platforms that they're working on. So it's it was a bit tricky to try to get their attention like you would do in a traditional uh, healthcare system, where you say, okay, what the docs and the ortho hate this? Yep. All right, we're meeting with ortho because they have a meeting every Friday at so and so. So I'll go to that meeting, get input from the orthos, and we go from there. And you find the strong personalities, and you figure out how we can negotiate, deal with this, yada yada. You do that. Well, in these kind of environments, that's not so, because you have like you know a lot of different docs hitting the platform, and they're going a lot, and they make their money. I mean, you know, they get compensated with time. And so I'm going to ask them for an hour of their time to tell me about something in their software. Most of you know, that's just not a. You could try it, you know, I tried it, but they weren't taking, they weren't biting. So, <laughs> and once again, it was a lot of white noise, not signal. And that's what happens whenever you get the white noise, it's docs that complain and move, complain and move, complain and move. And you're not quite sure if we could put how much validity to put on it. Right. So when I, when we run into those situations, then we have to go hard data. I w- I'd say it's almost, uh, I remember when we, Craig, you remember when you, uh, we were, we practiced in the neonatal ICU, right? Okay. Those babies were so small, right? You couldn't really examine their under saran wrap and all this protection and, intubated and things like that. But the data was coming out. You saw how they did overnight. You saw the labs, right? You saw the KUB, right? You saw the opto came by, look for retinopathy prematurity. All these things, well, we had to go data. So that's basically our approach here. We went hard data. We pulled the PEP signal data, which is like Epic's ability to track phobias in a way, right? Good time back to Microsoft. So let's get data and see where are the docs getting bogged down? What valleys and crevices are they getting bogged down in so that we can then see oh, there's something we could do on this side that'll decrease that friction. And so that's what we did. We spent like maybe a whole month just combing through data, the notes they used, the navigators they get they were using, the reason for visits they were doing, what was the encounter diagnosis, what were the meds they were giving. And then what we did is, okay, now we have hard data on what they've been doing for a year. Now let's look at the current state. Well, actually look at the current state first. The current state was uh, there was a lot of docs that were ordering medication. They didn't have to add like, 10 milligrams or something like amlodipine, okay? Amlodipine, 10 milligrams is almost what you just start off with, you know, whatever. So why should they have to pick that? You know, just find those things that are common to save a click. And this is what I call the Lord's work because it's really detailed. And if done right, no one will notice. That's what sucks about the work because you don't get the kudos, right? You don't get, oh, Dr. P, thanks for making this better. No, if it's done right, it just works. Almost like when Apple iPhone uh, up, updates and something just cool pops out, oh, that's cool. You don't call Apple say thanks. You like you should have done it before. So <laughs> it's kind of a thankless job when you approach things like that. But that's what we've been doing the past. And so honestly, tomorrow, what's today? Tomorrow we have a whole pack going in the key care that's going to help alleviate a lot of some of the white noise. And we're going to be measured before and after to see the benefits and things like that. And so the goal is if we make this platform the right, we want all docs that are virtuous to be coming on this and be like, hey, bro. Forget those other ones. Key care platform is easy. We get on, click, 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 we're done. Get on, click, 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 we're done, and it's epic. That's what I'm going for when I design things. I want it to 
to crush. I want docs to, to choose key care because of the platform, you know, because they know they can get in and get out. What studies have shown is that nurses would pick, a graduating nurse will choose a healthcare system based on the EHR. Like, that's crazy, but also it's a great market differentiator. And if in key care, where our platform is the product, part of it, we're also getting a medical group. So kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's funny what you what you said about uh, you know Apple products uh, and and their design and, and your work as essentially uh, an informaticist who who helps design things to make them work. Uh, not only do you not get kudos, often uh, you get yelled at. Right? Why did you change this? I hate this. I liked it before, um, and and this is horrible. And I'm never going to be able to uh, to continue uh, to to practice medicine. And then you go that back two weeks later, and you're like, hey, how about those that change that you said was horrible and that you could never use it? And uh, most of us um, will be like, yeah, I don't remember what what was I complaining about. Um, I, I know I've certainly done that on my phone. I, I, there's an app. It, it updates in the middle of the night. It's horrible. I hate it. I can't figure it out. And then two weeks later, if you sent me an email like, hey, we're going to put it back to the way it was, I'd be like, I don't even know what that is. Right? So I, That's it. We, we humans don't like change, even if the change is better for us. And it takes some time to kind of get over that. That's it. That's it. I don't know. As a pedi- This is one of those things. You can cut on the podcast later. But I think as a pediatrician, you know, really, and this is one of those. As a pediatrician, there are certain patient types, especially those uh, that we deal with, that personality types even, or as an adult, you know, for certain personality types that change, type A. You know, we know, like, this is the medicine for you, or this is a procedure you need. But you're looking in their eyes, you almost feel like they know it too, but they're just not going to get themselves to do it, you know? And so I think that's all. Change is hard, you know, uh, for everyone, especially when you have changed before for IT, because they said change, and you do, and then you get burned. Okay, you're not going to be willing to change again unless you've got some guarantees. And so I tell a lot, when I counsel, when I uh, advise third-party startups, this is one of the th- first thing I say, whatever you do, just remember you're going in with a tool that's for docs, but these docs have a lot of antibodies right now to bad technology. Okay, so if they're not, you better really come with it, and you better stick the landing, as they say, the mixed metaphors, right? <laughs> if your software had better stick the landing the first time, and you just have to do it, you know? And so I have to kind of make sure they understand, like, Docs are not just going to be, oh, this is awesome. Let me add that to my workload. That's not how it works. If it solves a need and it's seamless and frictionless, they'll take to it like a fish to a hook, right? But if it's not, don't get upset. They're like, well, I don't know why the docs are. The docs just need to do this. No, 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 no. We're 2023. We're 2023. No longer is it the docs' fault. It's the software's fault now. Sorry, we're done with docs, okay? So, I mean, Halo, I talked about Halo. You design software the right way, it's easy. You do it. You put it, you make, that's how our brains work. And, you know, Netflix, when we're looking at Netflix, look at anything we design, anything in the world, whether it's Amazon, Netflix, whether it's Uber, Lyft, any of these apps, the United app, use those apps or other like the shopping apps, things like that. Those are examples of how it should be. And that what docs are getting used to over here, where we order things on Amazon, right, Craig? Right? We order things. There's order sets on Amazon. I've never ordered anything on Amazon. Absolutely, me either, right? But no. I order medications <laughs> on the EHR. My point being, there's a basket. There's a shopping basket concept. You get this, you put it in a basket, things like that. There are things that we should be incorporating that are industry standard. I remember back in the day, I would always coach Epic's developers. It's like, look, they, they want to go all creative sometimes. Like, stop. Make it like Microsoft already made it because they've already got, got our brains right here. So piggyback on that. You know, or things like that. Or like use someone. There's a term skeuomorphism. 
you know what the, I think that's like when you the make something Apple, look like the real world. Yeah. Yeah. I think Apple notes tried to do that with the yellow and the lines of, or one note will do that. Sometimes they try to make it look like a legal pad when you don't really need the lines of a legal pad. Right. But it helps humans get over the hump sometimes. So yeah. I think using some more of those would probably be pretty cool. I don't know all the words, all this. I just like to throw out stuff. I'm selling some more. Yeah. Same, same. <laughs> all right. Well, Dr. Butler, uh, as we get near the end of our episode, we always like to ask our guests if they have some examples of design that that, that they think uh, are products that they think are designed so well that they bring them joy. And so are there are there some things that are in your life that you think are designed so well that uh, they always make you smile when you use them? Bring me joy. Make me smile. That's a lot. Craig, I got some funny friends like you, so I'm not going to, yeah, I don't want to compare a product to somebody make me laugh like you. So I do, I would, I'll, re, I'll rephrase it. I say products when I use it, it, I don't think about it, right? Fair enough. Well, because if I have to think about it, then it's not enjoyable, right? <laughs> and so I think it's a whole book called Don't Make Me Think. It's a guy named Steve Crook, Don't Make Me Think. He wrote this book and he's got a version. I give it to all my analysts uh, most of the time when I work with them because basically it's about software design. Just, you know, like, this color should always mean this, okay? Top left should always be where eyes go. You know, things like that. Just principle, design principles. And uh, so I think about when I think of software and, the, and that book, Design of Everyday Things. You like that one as well, right? I think you mentioned that a couple of times in your podcast. So I think the thing that brings me joy now, I think about it, it's like I was in the closet. My, I don't know, you know, my tech closet is ridiculous. Cables everywhere, right? And I'm always going in there. I don't feel like organizing because you got this in that look USB-A. This in is lightning, this in USB-A, this in something else. Yeah, you know, like the, the end zone match. And so when I was in the closet the other night, I realized like when I saw a USB, uh, HDMI cable, I was just looking at HDMI cable. I got a new TV last week, right? So I was just looking at HDMI tech cable. And as soon as I saw the HDMI cable end, I knew the, the other end was the same. I got like, perfect. I love this cable. I love cables like that. There's no decision to be made, Craig. This end of HDMI looks like this end. And, I, and, I, and that's it. And I knew upside. And I like USB 50-50. You're doing a chance? No. And so I think that's one example. It's it's interoperable, actually. So, I mean, that it's actually funny that you say that, right? It's interoperable and you can't put it in the wrong way because it it's so it's there's some transparency about how it's how how it works as opposed to your traditional USB-A cable where it's, you know, 50-50. Good luck. Yeah, you can literally break that thing thinking you got it in the right way trying to push it in. I don't know, but I'm glad. Yeah, so that's one. Also, I, the other day I was in the grocery store. It's called Rayleigh's out here. I think the East Coast has Wegmans down south. They have Randall's and and North Pacific Northwest. They got Publix. I don't know somewhere. It's a grocery store chain, basically. There's a software that allows you to, you know, when you go and they want your phone number to get you discounts, get you in the matrix. That's fine. I give them my phone number. I'm in their matrix. That's fine. Because the benefits finally outweigh the risk. Okay. So now, because when I open the app, it knows all the things I bought before, right? So I can easily add it. I'm mean, on this when I, you know, of course I use Instacart and all that other stuff, but I don't. I like to walk the grocery store, get a little exercise, right? So the app is really slick because what it does, it'll, you, there's a, a sub-feature. Now, they need to make it more prominent, but it says by aisle, where aisle one, aisle two, aisle three. So it breaks up the list into the aisles so that I can be more efficient just going through the aisles that I need to go through. So I thought that was super smart because it has to be tied back into the supply chain, right? Like what's coming in. And so just organizing it for users pretty slick. And I think I saw a little Instacart teenager running through using the same app. And uh, so I don't know. I thought that was pretty slick design and it makes sense. And it serves both sides. It's not just one side of the store or it's, it's a win-win. 
So yeah. Know. Well, and I, I like your definition of, uh, of, um, you know, good design is uh, design that fades into the background. I don't even, I'm not even thinking about it. So it doesn't particularly bring me any kind of, uh, uh, of, uh, emotion. It just works. It does work. It does work. Well, speaking of just working, thank you, Dr. David Butler for, uh, joining us today. Really appreciated uh, the conversation, uh, had a good time and, uh, look forward to seeing what you're going to do in your, in your young career. What, what amazing things you'll uh, you'll do in the decades you have. Well, hope you ask me. Hope you um, ask me to come back, and I'll update you in a, maybe three months. I think three or four months will be really cool follow up to just say, well, did you say what's going to happen? Did it happen? And that way, I can eat crow, or I can you can sing my praises. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll have to see what happens. All right. Yep. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about David, visit calixpartners.com. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 